Welcome to the Life Sciences WA Investment Series. Investor meets Innovator. Hosted by Dr. Tracy Wilkinson and me, Peter Birch. In this limited podcast series, we've brought together a number of conversations with experts from medical science to finance to help demystify investing in biotech, medtech, and digital health, also known as the life sciences. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, seas, and community. We pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. The information in this podcast is general in nature and should not be taken as a substitute for professional or financial advice. This is the Investor Meets Innovator podcast brought to you by Life Sciences WA. You're joined by Peter Birch, Tracy Wilkinson, hosts of this series. Hi again, Tracy. Hi, Pete. In this episode of the podcast, we have a conversation on a topic that we're all pretty familiar with these days, clinical trials. We certainly are. I mean, the pathway to market for life sciences opportunities requires clinical trials. And so understanding what that means, how you do it, is a really important piece of the puzzle, um, as you say. And this conversation was a real deep dive into that area from two people who have, I think I added it up to, actually, I won't embarrass them, but many decades of experience in this space. Natalie Barber, Director of Clinical Operations at Chrysalis Advisory, and Professor Peter Richmond from the University of Western Australia. So a really good deep dive yeah, into this really important topic. So it's a pleasure to be meeting today on Wujak Noongar Bujak to talk about clinical trials with Natalie Barber, Director of Clinical Operations with Chrysalis Advisory, a full-service health and medical research consulting and commercialisation advisory firm, and Professor Peter Richmond from the University of Western Australia, Head of Department of Immunology at the Child and Adolescent Health Service and Director of the Vaccine Trials Group at the Telethon Kids Institute. So if those titles didn't convince you, by my calculations, between the both of you, you have almost 45 years of experience in clinical research and you don't look a day over it. (laughs) So thank you for making the time to share your knowledge with us today. So Peter, I'm going to come to you first. As a clinician researcher, what are your particular research interests? So I'm a paediatrician by training and so I've really focused on what we can do to improve the health of children more broadly. And most of my research has been around prevention of infectious diseases with vaccines and more recently with monoclonal antibodies. And so I've been involved from very early stages of planning how to design a vaccine through phase one, phase two and phase three trials and at the other end being on regulatory advisory boards for immunisation for Australia, deciding how we might implement a new vaccine that comes along. So I guess I've had experience over the whole pipeline and for me it's all about getting them into use so that they will actually impact on health. And I think that's what clinical trials is really about, is getting the evidence so that we have new products that can improve people's lives. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. And Nat, your involvement in clinical trials is a little bit different. So I'm going to ask you how you describe what you do in this space at a barbecue. If we were sitting around over a snag, How do you talk about your job with how it relates to clinical trials? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I guess I'm on the other side of clinical trials and really trying to support people like 
Peter in the medical space, in the research space, to deliver those very complex trials, make sure they meet the required standards, which can be quite lengthy. And I always say that you don't know what you don't know and that you always need other people around you to support those processes. So my background is really in that clinical trial delivery space and supporting people to navigate through those very complex processes for clinical trials which often people don't understand, and I have that at barbecues. I Which is why that. we're recording this podcast um, on this topic today. <laughs> and what that actually means, what does support mean? And that means understanding how you develop a protocol, how you actually then get the sites involved in taking part in those trials, making sure they're being run to the proper standards, regulatory requirements. And why do I do that? Why am I on the other side of that fence? I actually get a great deal of satisfaction in seeing the outcomes of clinical trials and being able to help those busy clinician researchers to deliver those trials and making sure that they meet their outcomes to improve the life of us as human beings, to be honest. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Without reaching those outcomes, the drugs don't get to market no. and they don't help anyone, I no, suppose. So no, that's so why it's such a pivotal part of when we think about yeah. commercialisation. That's right. And if I can help sciences. that, then I'm really happy in, in what I do. Fantastic. Thank you. We're going to stay with you and I'm going to ask you to talk through some of the really structured pathways that a drug or device has to follow before being approved for the market. Just at a high level, can you talk us through what that clinical trial pipeline Mm -hmm. looks like? Everyone has obviously heard, thanks to COVID, phase one, phase two, phase three, but can you just give us a little bit of an overview for those that don't really understand what this means. Sure, yeah. I've spent my career in this space and I feel I know it so well and it's hard to get that across, but it's a step-by-step process that every drug or device has to undertake and that includes apps in a medical health environment as well. And you'll start from a process which is can be a preclinical and that's in your laboratory animal studies, but then you move into human studies and you would start with phase one which probably a lot of people heard through COVID, which is your very early phase study where you're looking at the safety of a drug or a device. They're normally smaller studies in healthy volunteers and the timescale from them can be like a month to a year. They're normally quicker, faster trials. You progress through to phase one, which is then a more in-depth look into what you learned from phase one into phase two, and you're more in-depth look into that, and you're looking for your target condition a bit further, all safety data, the treatment effectiveness, and the potential side effects. It's normally in the actual population that you want to treat that particular condition. They're normally around one to three years, those trials. When you get into your phase three, you're then looking into an even larger group So you imagine this is scaling up as you go. You're gathering more information, more data, and you're looking at potentially hundreds to thousands of people when you get to a phase. So the costs are going up. You can see where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. And again, at this stage, there's been a decision made to go into that scale up because it is financially significant jump between these different phases. And they're often used to compare against standard treatments gather more information, you're always looking at safety and efficacy or effectiveness through those different phases. And at the end of a phase three, you're really determining, is this going to get to market? Okay, so you've got lots of data by that stage. And at any moment in that pathway, a company might decide to not take a particular drug or device forwards because of the information that they've already found. Once it's got to market, and this is a bit that people probably may not aware of as a phase four, 
And this is continuous surveillance of something that's already gone to market. And this can be long-term, never ends, and there's whole teams of people in pharmaceutical companies collecting data on the safety profile of a drug and a device that they monitor continuously through that phase. So for a company, that cost doesn't stop once something gets to market. They're still spending money to make sure that drugs, devices are safe for the population. And as you can tell, that can take, if you're taking a drug from concept, phase one, animal research, all the way through to phase four, that can take 10 to 15 years. It's a long investment for somebody to make, and they need to know whether they've got that financial stability to be able to take it all the way through. Absolutely. As well. And we have some great clinical trial infrastructure here in WA. Mm-hmm. Obviously, what Panda does in the vaccine trials group, but also linear clinical is when I travel around the world, people know about linear clinical mm-hmm. and their capability, particularly in that early phase, clinical trial space. So I think that's worth highlighting as well, that these are activities that can be done in Perth up to a certain point. Yep. But at some point, I'm assuming the number of patients needed means that you need to go global and we're talking multi-center trials you around are. the world you are yeah in my early career i worked on a phase three trial and to be honest it took me around the world because we were recruiting hundreds of participants and really companies need to get data from all different jurisdictions across the world in order for it to be beneficial economically financially for them to take that forwards in those different jurisdictions yeah yeah a consideration that every drug company and device company needs to make as well. So in terms of ballpark costs, I know this is a really hard because <laughs> it, it depends, I suppose, it, it it does, is yeah. the answer, but are there any kind of indications that you can give the listeners as to what we're talking about here? Maybe for one particular indication or a therapeutic area? This is a tough one because it really does depend on the complexity of the drug, the trial, the amount of data that needs to be collected, the participants, all of those kind of things. But having said that, an early phase one trial can be anything from like $1 million to $5 million. And then as you go up, that exponentially increases through those phases. So by the time you get to a phase three trial, again, you're depending, this is going to seem like a really wide range, but you're talking and there's a big jump here from $20 million to $100 million easily. Sure. That figure I'm suggesting there is just really to operate that trial. It's not talking about all the commercialization activities that are happening in the background. It's really just to run those trials and get the drugs made, distributed. So it's a significant investment that companies need to make. Medical device trials can be less and they tend to be more around those several million dollars depending on those complexities of those studies. But yes, it's something that people need to bear in mind when they go into launch into this and a big consideration for somebody like Peter when he's taking on a research study that maybe he's doing in a new indication, when is he going to need that investment perhaps from a pharmaceutical company to support him through to the end of that because the costs are significant. Agree. Thank you for that segue onto Peter. I want to get your perspective as a clinician to talk about like why clinical trials are needed. And there's one area which was not really the focus today, but Nat's brought up. So I'll speak to it directly around digital health. And there's sort of a view that this is the space where maybe you don't need clinical evidence or we don't need to go through the TGA. It's a faster path to market. And I think my argument would be if that's the case, then maybe you're not having the clinical benefit 
that means that maybe it's not a great product to be as blunt as possible. So from your perspective as a clinician, why are clinical trials needed? What type of data are you looking for? And why is that data collected? Where does it go? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say, and this will vary depending on the intervention, but I think as a clinician, you have to know that something's safe. First, do no harm. So therefore, safety is always a pivotal aspect of that and always taken very seriously. And there's always a strong emphasis on collecting all the information, even at that particular time, you don't know whether it's a safety signal or not. And that's so that once we start to scale up these clinical trials, we can look for particular signals that might have occurred. And sometimes things come up post-licensure that weren't picked up in those early trials. And that's because you're going from thousands of people or tens of thousands of people to millions or in the case of things like COVID, billions of people. And so very rare events will then become available. So certainly safety is really important. We really want to know whether something works or not. And I think for me, that's always the biggest risk of having something that's not been approved by a regulatory agency is you really have no confidence in whether or not something works. And people can swear black and white that this is something that has transformed my life But actually, when it gets into a clinical trial, you really know that it does work. And so that's really important. And I think the other thing that it's really important is it's the size of that effect and how it compares to other drugs or devices that we have on or apps that we have on the market as to how much better is it or is it as good? Because that will determine whether somebody will pay for it, whether that's a consumer, a patient, a practice, or whether it's a government who wants to introduce it. And certainly to get that coverage, having it approved by a regulator and a government to say, yes, this is not only safe and effective, but it's also cost effective, is critical. And so we now have an increasing focus on collecting costs when we're doing clinical trials, because that's a very good way of showing, demonstrating how much you can prevent. And so that will determine how broadly your device or drug will be used. And every regulator in every country of the world will want to have some of that information. And Australia is in the unique place that actually the quality of clinical trials done in Australia is extremely high. So regulators, the FDA, the European Medicines Agency, all see trials done in Australia as something that can be trusted. So that's one of the advantages we have, and that's why we have international companies coming to our door at whatever stage of clinical trials saying, can we get involved in Australia? Excellent. So can I ask you a completely unscripted question? Yeah. Have you ever seen something go through a reimbursement pathway, regulatory pathway, and then clinicians don't really choose to prescribe it because something's missing? Is that a thing? Yeah, that certainly does occur. One of them actually, which I didn't mention before, is the consumer approach. So what does the consumer really want that you're offering? And that's particularly in the context of an app, for instance that how do you really know that they're going to use this app every day? You know, I want to be healthy and watch my weight or increase my exercise. Will I fill in data every day to do that? Maybe not. And so I think that's an important part. If you don't think somebody is actually going to use your device or your drug or for whatever reason it might be, it's just impossible to remember to take something five times a day. You may have something that is possible or it really doesn't make that much of a difference to a person's life or health then I think it's much harder for staff, for companies to actually sell products. And so you really need to do that market research on if you're a general practitioner, are you going to prescribe this product if X, Y, and Z are required from the patient? 
you might say, yeah, it works, but I can't use that every day. That's, that just isn't going to fit into, I can't see these people that often. I'm so busy, I can't, can only see them every so often, or whatever it might be in terms of whether it's a vaccine or a drug or a device that has to be used. So I think there's definitely examples where you can get something on the market, but if there's a better product out there or it's too expensive, then people just won't use it. So definitely we have seen that. And I think getting something licensed by a regulatory agency is not the same as getting it used by everyone because that's really just saying it's safe and effective and then it's up to you to sort of work out what the price should be and how will it be used. Absolutely. So I guess in summary, this is really complicated and complex (laughs) and you need to speak to lots of different people, uh, clinicians as well as the patients themselves and clinical trials are just no, that's a really right. important part of that, but yeah. there's lots of things that feed into those clinical yeah. trials. That's right. And I think that's why you see big pharmaceutical companies often have advisory boards around key opinion leaders who can provide some True. of that reality check for them about is this something that we think we can do. And sometimes it might be there's been a safety problem with product X, product Y looks pretty similar. Is it worth going down that line? Because everyone's going to think, I'm not convinced it's safe. And I think if that's the case, you want to know that at the start of the process, not after you've put hundreds of million dollars into a phase three trial. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess given this podcast, you know, our audience, we're hoping is people interested in investing in biotechs and medtechs. I suppose this brings highlights another point, which is the involvement of key opinion leaders and clinicians around a project is really crucial for lots of different reasons to make sure that the product is something that is valuable and going to get to market and adopted by clinicians. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really important. And the earlier you get that involvement, the better. And it's good that it's independent outside the person who's developed the particular product because I think they have a vested interest. So you really want to know the warts and all before you get started. So then you have a much more realistic expectation of what the pathway might look like. Yeah. Okay. So from your perspective, what are the factors that you think need to be taken into consideration when you're designing a clinical trial for a specific product from your clinical perspective? If you can talk through that, I don't know whether you want to do an example around vaccines or speak at a higher level more broadly. Yeah, so I think when you're planning a clinical trial, one of the things that I think particularly small biotech startups who are really starting out on this process want to do, they want to gather as much information as possible. And that might be the number of blood tests they have, the number of times they want you to speak to participants, And I think you need to understand what is it that you need to get from this stage of the clinical trial through to the next step. And yes, all this other information might be nice, but actually if that stops you getting your clinical trial done in a reasonable timeframe, actually that's a negative, not a positive. And I work in paediatrics, so every time I see a protocol, one of the first things I look at is how many times do you want a blood test from this baby? And if you tell me, oh, we want you to take blood every month for the first year of life, I'm going to say, well, Thank you, but no, thank you. That's not possible. So understanding what's the critical information to get through that stage of the study and then what might you be able to do when you have a much larger study and you might be able to do that on a subset of the population to confirm or deny that. But I think that's a really important. Having a clear plan right from the outset about what are the stages that you'll have to go through to get your product to the point where you're submitting it to a regulator is also really critical. So I think that getting good advice early and then having a clear plan about what the critical outcomes will be from each of those stages is really important. The other thing is also, and 
there's some examples that I've been involved in of are you actually to able make this product to scale? So sometimes it's able to be done in a small laboratory and we can put it, make enough of this product to give to mice. But when it comes to scaling it up from a commercial point of view to provide thousands or maybe millions of doses, if that's not going to work, then you won't get investment from Big Pharma because that's one of the first things I'll ask. Can we manufacture this to scale? How do we know that every time we manufacture it, it's going to be the same? What are your quality controls that you need to build in? So understanding that you don't always have to do that before you start your phase one trial. Often that might be something you say, okay, once we've got to phase one, then we can start to look at some of these processes. But you need to have thought about it. That's really important. Great. And that we've already kind of moved into the commercial perspective. Mm. What are your thoughts around the factors that really need to be considered? Or maybe to flip this around the other way, what do you wish more people thought about when they were designing a clinical trial? Yeah, yeah, it's great. There's no, Peter says there's not this independent view. They've already got an idea and they really believe in the product and it's going to work, but there's so many things that need to be considered. And Going in sometimes early in those early medtech and biotech companies, having those conversations that I've had around, have you considered your target market here? What have you done to validate that you actually have a target market? What's your competitive landscape look like? Are you going head to head with somebody else here? Can you compete with them? And can that be valuable as well? Sometimes like a negative can be a positive where you can sort of, okay, these are the endpoints that they're using. We can use similar endpoints and therefore validate that we're better. Yes, absolutely. If you can find that intel and you know it, (laughs) that's very helpful. Peter's already touched on this and one of my points was around those primary endpoints, making sure you are crystal clear on what your outcomes are before you go into that trial. You do not want to redo it. I've had this conversation with people. You don't want to go and do this trial again. It's going to cost you money. That means actually at that very early stage when you're even thinking about it, possibly even before your phase one study, what are those outcomes you're trying to achieve and can you meet them and make sure you're designing those trials accordingly to meet those outcomes. The regulatory requirements, I can't tell you how many times people don't consider that. I think the regulators are seen as a potential big scary thing, a beast that they can't speak to. You're better off to speak to them if you're not sure and understand your regulatory pathway, or seek out experts that know or can help guide you around those regulatory pathways as well. We've talked about this as well, market access, reimbursement, you know, what is your actual commercial outcome here and are you going to meet it? Are you looking for an investment at some point? Are you going to sell what you're doing at some point? All of that needs to be considered, I would say, probably before you even get into a clinical trial. And having that plan, your clinical development pathway, mapped out as early as possible. And I've spoken to a number of people where they haven't done that. They've gone, I've got a product, we're launching into a clinical trial. Even the preclinical data, is that complete? Can you actually go into the next study? So there's the usual things around time and cost and speed to market and all of those things. But there's just one other thing I wanted to say was you really need to think also about what is your product labelling and the claims you are making. Those claims then need to be reflected in the trials that you are running to make sure you are answering those claims. You can't put something to market if you haven't got the data to back it up. So it's starting with the end in mind, but this is the product and the target product profile that we want to meet. And I think that's how some big pharma do it, right? They actually write out (laughs) the label and what's going to be on that information and then they work back from that. Yeah. That's right. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, so, they, they may have a whole load of molecules coming off their laboratory pipeline, but there's somebody always looking for that target and is mm. actually going to mm. um, yeah. deliver what they need. And it's got to be profitable. So it can take 10 to 15 years. You've got a limited patent on that. How many years are you going to have in terms of being able to make a profit from 100 million, say, more investment that you've made on that product? So there's a number of considerations. That's not to say that they're not also looking at all the scientific rigor behind it as well, because as Peter said, highly regulated environment, the regulatory authorities are looking for quality data, safety profile, all the way through. So that's why the regulators actually can be your friend. Great. I think that's a nice way to reframe regulators as a friend. I like that. The TGA will be thrilled to hear that message getting out, I'm sure. Peter, coming to you with a totally different question, who takes part in clinical trials? Like how do they get recruited? How people know about these opportunities? Yeah, that's a great question. I wish I knew the answer to that better, I think, really, because <laughs> that is always the biggest challenge of a clinical trial is recruitment of patients who want to come in. For things like vaccines, they're generally healthy volunteers is usually the first point of call. And so really it's you're looking for people who have a connection to what you're trying to do. So for a vaccine, it will be sometimes it's a lived experience of a problem within their family or friends, and so they understand that and they really want to do something about it. There's definitely a degree of altruism, I think, in people who come into clinical trials where they're healthy volunteers. So I think that's certainly a type of person who will come into a study is much more likely to understand the processes and just wants to do it for the benefit of people, and particularly young people, I think that's right. Sometimes if it's a phase one study, often there's a lot of restrictions on what you can do. You might be cooped up in a room for a week doing pharmacokinetic studies, then sometimes it's about the money. So in phase one trials, sometimes the financial incentive. I have to um, shout out Linear, by the way, for exactly. those that their new facility in Gingerlup is as nice as a hotel. That would not be a hard place to go and pay to spend a week. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think people are very happy to sit there on their laptops and game and listen to music. I, I mean, the majority of it is clinical trials are trying to make patients get better. And so really, I think increasingly we're seeing that it's about people who want to know that, one, they're getting the best possible treatment. And we know that in clinical trials, even if you don't get an active product, you still have a better outcome than somebody at the same hospital. Yeah, I love that message. So basically that means that Anyone involved in a clinical trial actually gets better outcomes. Absolutely. Even if they don't get the therapeutic or the treatment. Yeah, absolutely. I think a great example is children's cancer. So over the last 50 years, common children's cancers have gone from having a 90% fatality rate to a 95% survival rate without problems. So I think we have seen a huge change. And that's because you are getting the most detailed care. Everything is being looked at. You are learning from being in a study and doing what is best care. And so I think that's been a really important part of it. So now I think you will see all the major hospitals are really trying, both public and private, are trying to bring more clinical trials in, not so much from a financial perspective, but actually it enhances the overall quality of care that their patients get. And so we see that very much in places like the United States. People will fly to another state to get into a clinical trial because they know that's their best chance of getting the best care. So I think 
and it is people motivated. And I'd have to say, having been involved in some of these trials, sometimes it's just to say, I don't want to have what happened to me. If I can change the outcome for somebody in the future, even though I may be not at a stage where my disease is reversible, then I want the next person to get a better go. So that altruism still comes through, even if they're not going to necessarily directly benefit from that study. But without patients volunteering for clinical trials, we wouldn't have any new drugs coming through. So it's really important that we all think about that. I think we need to get smarter in how we sort of document who's interested in doing clinical trials, and we probably underestimate that. So I think we, and a lot of busy clinical trial units, will have quite large databases of people. And we find, doing volunteer studies, we have a lot of people repeat coming into trials to get the latest new vaccine, or their children or their family or their parents coming in because they enjoy the process. Sometimes it can be tricky with things like parking at a busy teaching hospital, but by and large, they like the fact that they not only are doing something good, but also they get really good feedback on how they've gone and what is the implications of the work they're doing. So I think increasingly we're getting much better at feeding that information back, and that's why people should be involved in research. Absolutely. So at this point, I'm going to say, yeah, please. Sorry, I just want to say you can't underestimate the enthusiasm from the actual clinicians and researchers themselves without them None of this would happen throughout my career. They are integral to running clinical trials and you need to have people that are passionate and they're actually often doing this outside of their clinical load already across the board, all the teams, to make these happen for their own research and for sponsored commercial trials. Phase one unit slightly different because obviously that's what they're set up to do and they're commercially run. They're really important and for sponsors, they're really looking for those dedicated clinicians and experts in their fields and key opinion leaders to take these trials through yeah. as well. And it's a huge amount of work for them and responsibility. So the sponsors don't bear all the responsibility. The clinicians are taking somewhat of a risk to trial a new drug. Yeah, I agree. But I think, again, that's because clinicians really want to have the latest treatments available. And yeah. this is one way that they can get it. And we know that if we have good Australian experience with a particular product in clinical trials and it's much more likely to get taken up. And I would also say, though, that it's enthusiasm is one thing, but experience in doing clinical trials is also <laughs> critical. So that's always something that I like to look at. If you, it's People generally underestimate the amount of work that goes into doing yes. clinical trials, yeah. particularly clinicians. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, I think on that note, I'm going to call it a wrap. And thank you both for your time. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Natalie, for sharing all of your knowledge, well, not all of your wisdom, as much wisdom as we could cram into about 40 minutes of discussion. So thank you very much, Peter. My my pleasure. It's been great. This podcast has been brought to you by Life Sciences WA, which is Western Australia's Life Sciences Industry Association, in collaboration with Talking Health Tech. It's been made possible with funding support from the Western Australian Government through the New Industries Fund and the Ready Initiative, managed by MTP Connect on behalf of the Medical Research Future Fund and with the support of AntHealth. If you liked this episode, please complete the feedback survey. There's a link to that survey you can access from within your podcast player. You can also follow Life Sciences WA on LinkedIn and Twitter or subscribe to the mailing list at lifesciencewa.com.au.